is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 218 of the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Holger Nielspool, and we're talking all about writing high-quality children's books, as well as talking about creating clarity and business in your back matter of your books and all kinds of things. So I'm not asking a question of the week. I would still love to know what you thought about the episode. So if you have thoughts, please do leave comments, and I will be reading them out on the show. Personal news and updates, then. I I have finished my outline. Uh, it took me a whole week because I had a couple of days out of the office. Um, but I have now finished my outline and I am going to be starting to write tomorrow. And as I finish this book before Christmas, I will be working on a couple of things. One is creating my Shopify store. And the other thing is I am, I finally know what I'm going to be doing with all of the courses and this kind of stuff. So what has been preventing me from creating nonfiction courses is that I really love your face. <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, I know. But this was a realization that I had in Vegas. The thing that I thrive off when I teach is seeing you, seeing your face and seeing how you react to the information that I'm sharing or the lessons that I've learned or the tools and the tricks that I'm giving you. And so what I was struggling to do was to do that in a pre-recorded course. So what makes total sense to me then, and thank you, uh, Joe, who made this suggestion, is to teach live and to do one-off webinars or to do um, kind of like a live webinar that I do across a couple of time zones so that people can come from different time zones. So I am going to be doing that and starting on the first weekend in February, I'm saying this publicly so that I've committed, um, I will probably put it up for, um, well, what is that? It's not a pre-order, is it? Is it a pre-order? No, I don't, like for purchase? <laughs> I don't know, for booking, there we go, uh, for booking, um, possibly before Christmas, maybe because it's so tight now, I might just leave it until January, probably leave it, I don't, I don't know, anyway, look out for that, uh, if you're on my newsletter, you'll find out first in the Patreon community, and obviously I will then tell you here, and I will share the links to that, I'm going to be doing uh, pros in the market uh, as the first one where I will show you understand what requirements there are for or what expectations there are from readers, how you can um, include tropes in your books intentionally in order to put them into your marketing. I'll show you how to deconstruct what the authors who are selling uh, the top sellers in your genre, how to deconstruct what they're doing, the elements that you need to take into your prose and your writing and your craft, a whole bunch of stuff. I will um, probably write a blurb so that I speak more coherently. But I am super excited now because I now get to do the thing that I love, which is one, teaching and sharing the information, but two, getting to see your faces. I literally don't understand why this didn't occur to me sooner. But sometimes we can't see the wood for the trees, can we? Okay, so... Listener of the week this week is anonymous. Listener, rebel of the week is anonymous. Anonymous says, I grew up in a very straight-laced household and was often reprimanded for wearing anything that revealed too much skin. Shirts that showed cleavage, shorter skirts and midriff were off limits. One of the biggest reasons I was given uh, was that it would tempt men too much. Ugh. Specifically, older men like teachers. What the fuck? There is so much wrong with that. Oh my God. Uh, I always found this extremely annoying because I didn't feel like I should have to cover up exactly for the sake of protecting the virtues of somebody else. Amen. Um, I never felt shame towards my body and didn't really appreciate my family trying to instill that shame in me. I was taught to hide myself, but the lesson didn't really stick. As an adult, I wear whatever I want. And sometimes that means nothing at all. <laughs> for example... I'm a winter swimming addict and can be found at the lake each week taking a chilly dip completely in the skinny because when it's freezing, I can't be fucked with a suit. Not only is the nudity functional, allowing me to quickly dry off and get into warm clothes, but it's also freeing. It feels like the most natural thing in the world. I'm not alone in this. I now live in a country where nudity isn't as much of a taboo. So I see fellow swimmers showing off their bits all year round. It isn't crude or sexual. It's just people having a swim. Uh, first of all, I love this rebellion. Second of all, 
whoa to freeze it to, to swimming in the nutty pants like balls of steel vagina of iron whichever way you want to describe it like um um i can cut bacon over here just thinking about getting in a, a freezing cold lake <laughs> or river or whatever it is that you swim in holy moly okay no new patrons this week but a huge enormous thank you to all of my existing patrons if you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content, like um, we're having a Christmas bash uh, for our Poison and Prose session. We're going to be talking about what we've achieved this year, what we're going to achieve next year, and then we're going to have some fun and games. And then we have our final uh, masterclass of the year, early December, where we are going to be learning all about dark academia. So you can get all of that and much more from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. This episode is sponsored by Kobo Writing Life, Kobo's free, fast and easy self-publishing platform. KWL was built by authors for authors and their team of dedicated book lovers is always working hard to help you reach new readers around the world. Kobo's author-first approach is one of the reasons they developed a promotions tool. This is an easy, affordable way for you to market your book directly to Kobo readers. They offer lots of promotions that don't require you to drop your price because they know when you're publishing wide, it can be a pain to coordinate pricing across multiple retailers. Any promotions listed as a percent off, e.g. 40% VIP sale, means you don't have to change your price as the discount will be provided by the promo code at checkout. If that sounds good to you, keep an eye out for percent off promotions and buy more save more sales, where you can submit your titles and leave the rest to Kobo. And if you're taking part in a promotion, be sure to tell your readers about it. The promotions tool is updated on a weekly basis, so make sure you're taking a regular look to see what's on offer if there's an opportunity that matches your books and marketing plans. If you're a KWL author and don't yet have access to the promotions tool, email the team at writinglife at kobo.com. They'll enable this for you. If you want to learn more about KWL, check out the Kobo Writing Life podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts and find them on social. You can create your free account today at kobo.com forward slash writing life. Hello and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Holger Nils-Pool. Holger is a visual strategist, professional speaker, trainer and coach. He also He's also the author of multiple books from business to children's, as well as the co-creator of an award-winning business board game. Hello and welcome. Hello, Sasha. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you for joining me. Tell me about the business game, the business board game. How oh, the business board game. So... That was the idea that some business concepts are pretty tricky to to learn for people. And in this case, it was about lean startup, which is a very tricky concept to understand for normal business people, because it's about learning first about the needs of your customers before you produce like or build a service or a product. So you first go to the customers, you learn from them what they need, and then you start building your product. Whereas in most cases, businesses build a product and try to find a customer afterwards, right? And that's, the um... challenge, right? That's a challenge because um, you spend a lot of money developing a product, but you don't know if anybody wants it, actually. It reminds me of the whole concept of writing to market. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, because that's, we're so resistant in the, in the community to, I don't really like calling it writing to market. I feel like it's writing to reader. Like that's the yeah. phrase that I like to use because the reader is the purchaser and therefore you're delivering to the customer what the customer actually wants. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I suppose it's that, it's that age old question of like business versus art, but I kind of feel like it is an art form to deliver what the customer actually wants. Like the amount of iteration and practice and like trial and error that you have to use mm. to, to actually deliver what is what, what the reader desires, because we can write in air quotes, a trope and yeah. not actually nail that trope, like mm -hmm. in terms of what the market wants. And that's why I feel like so much of this is a, is science versus a lot of science and art combined, because 
these tropes, these things, all of the pros, it's a science. Like you can deconstruct it to forensic mm-hmm. detail, like as mm-hmm. a as a as a science. But anyway, that's not why what we're here to talk about. Um, <laughs> but I find that super interesting though. Tell everyone a little bit about your journey and how you got to where you are today. Like what inspired you to start writing about clarity and autism for children? Yeah. So that's a long journey. Let me try to make that short enough. Um so I was a creator all my life. I wasn't a writer. So many writers say they they wrote for all their life. But actually, I hated writing in school. Uh, I wasn't good at it, very good at it. But I was creating. I was drawing. I was painting. I was crafting. And uh, that led to the decision that I would become an architect because that would be something like an engineer. That's a kind of a proper job and still being creative. Um, I couldn't be more wrong in my life, right? So I I tried that for for one and a half years and then just stopped it, left university completely like dis- disillusionized and um, didn't know what to do. But I came back to, to the crafting piece and I became a carpenter. And car- carpentry is basically as well kind of a creative job because you, you craft something out of, out of the raw material, which is wooden. That was a lot of fun to learn that. It wasn't enough for me, so I wanted to learn more and went to the university again and became a communication designer, which is again like... A lot of creativity, a lot of creation, but a lot of psychology as well, which uh, which was nice. And while I did that, I was as well a teacher in an art school, like teaching people how to draw, how to paint with uh, oil and acrylics, watercolors, all that kind of stuff. And that led to my like my self employment right after the university, doing a bit of teaching. I was a lecturer at universities, uh, and I helped clients designing concepts and and all that kind of stuff. And built that over the years into a, a business of facilitation, coaching, and training to help people creating more clarity with the visual tools because um, I saw the need that a lot of people just talk from left to right. They misunderstand each other. And uh, my belief is that visual tools can help solving that. I did that for a while and people started to ask me, like, could you write a book about what you know? That's what, And we're back to... Uh, writing to Rita actually, right? So because people were requesting from me, like, we need what you know, and we need your brain in a book, actually, because we can't pay you for being here all the time. And that's when I started writing books, nonfiction books about creativity, innovation, and clarity, and drawing. So I have some drawing books too. And that's kind of the business side. So then a funniest thing happened, actually, that was 2019. So I was invited to a workshop helping uh, people like parents and caretakers of autistic children to understand how they could leverage drawing to communicate with autistic individuals, because it's sometimes a bit tricky to talk to autistics, right? And that will be a new layer of information and a new layer of communication. So I went there. I just read like on the high level, what is autism? Because I didn't have a clue, actually. Uh, went to the workshop, did the workshop, everything was fine, everybody was happy, and I left. One year later, um, my oldest daughter got diagnosed with autism, Asperger's autism. Uh, I didn't have a clue before, right? It was just by chance that we figured she needs a, she needs help in school, and over the course of some diagnosis, it came out it's, it's autism. Uh, and that was the moment when I figured out myself that I am an Asperger's artist, or how we call ourselves, Aspie. Um, and I didn't know for 40 years. That was kind of a shocking revelation. Um, and it's still difficult to talk about it, interesting. Uh, like even three years after that, it's difficult to talk about it. A year later, our, our son as well got diagnosed. So we have three kids. So two of them are Aspies like me. And the third one is not a divergent too, but with, with the ADHD. So we have kind of a, a fun family at home. But what I did, and I, I mean, I'm Clifton Threnth, I'm, I'm top learner, like one number one, one learner, number one uh, intellection, and then activator, strategic, and achiever. So that led me to buying like a gazillion books about autism when I learned about that topic and that that could be me and my family. And I figured there are not enough books for kids. So to just explain uh, autism in a way that, that kids could enjoy a story and understand what it is. And that's why I started writing as well about autism. Oh, I, I love this so much. Have you, I'm not sure 
and feel free to say no or you, you don't want to talk about this and I will delete it out of the show but mm-hmm. have you found that you have been able to change your environment or um like change things in your business to help you feel more comfortable or like like after having a diagnosis have you yeah have you found that your creativity or processes have changed like as a result like for the better I I would say I'm still on a journey so even though I don't like the journey word but it's it's kind of a journey um with a a lot of uphill fighting. Um, I already changed like a few few things. So for example, before the pandemic, I was traveling literally every week to another country, like across USA to Asia and Middle East and Europe. I'm based in Germany. And um, I stopped that, right? Even when the pandemic was gone and we could travel again, I refused to travel that much because I now know that for an Aspie like me, uh, traveling that much is uh, not the best idea because it's a lot of stressful situations and uh, loud and different hotels to sleep in and all that kind of stuff. It's not healthy for me. So I reduced that hugely and working more from home uh, or from the office virtually doing virtual calls with my clients, which works properly well. And it's more comfortable for myself. Uh, And the second thing is that I'm leaning more into my creativity again, because That's my special interest as an SP, right? Um, Like creating stuff, drawing, uh, learning, helping people to understand things. And um, I'm leaning into that very heavily now, which I didn't do before. That was more like business, business, business. And now it's more like, what can I create today? I, as I have grown older, so I have a nine year, nearly 10 year old now, and he has had some issues at school, which mm-hmm. has enabled me to be a lot more reflective, like in my, in my, in and of myself. And um, I have sensory issues, which I don't really talk about on this show, um, but they can be quite severe. And um, I get very, very oversensitized quite quickly. And I think like being aware of it has enabled me to like embrace it and therefore not have to like mask it um, or cope with it. And so now I have like loop ear plugs that I don't leave the house without. Um, I can't go on the underground without them. I can't be in a restaurant without them. Um, I used to really struggle like when Atlas would go to, um, you know, like the kids bouncy play places. Like, Oh no. Yeah. Like I used to come out (laughs) exhausted and I'd feel like I was vibrating and stuff. And so now like I can go in there with my um, earplugs in, I can still have conversations because they're really like smart tech. I don't know how they work, but I can still hear everybody, but just, and like, actually I can enjoy it now. And it's made my life like so much better instead of denying like those issues. I'm just like so much, yeah, happier knowing that like that is an issue I do have like sensory issues like I'm funny about fabrics and I'm funny about texture and I'm funny about bloody like lights and all kinds of shit but like I would never admit that like I don't even think I've said this on the show ever before but yeah like it's something that like like you because of my child I've actually been able to turn around and go oh yeah shit like me too you know yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) yeah so um I think that's I think it's wonderful and it's definitely made me happier so okay let's talk a little bit about your process Mm. where and how do you even start writing for children because obviously like as adults our frame of reference and our mindset is adults right like we think as an adult so excuse me do you pick like a theme or a topic? Like, do you just write first? Do you talk to an illustrator? Like, tell me all the things. Like, how do you go from idea to like fully completed project? Mm, yeah. So from like the very first thing that I want to say is intention, right? Um, and the intention to be creative. I think that's important. Um, often enough, sometimes we run through our life without really looking at things. Uh, we just take things for granted and and do our stuff. So like what I do basically every morning in the mirror is talking to myself and say like, I am creative. It's a self-affirmation, right? And that's how I go through the world. I try to observe 
Um, I see what people do. I, I hear what they talk about. I mean, with the hearing is the problem too. I have the ear loops too. So I need oh, to have it as well outside. They're it's amazing. Kind of revelation. Yeah. Have you seen the new Switch ones? Yeah, I have. I was itch, itching <laughs> to order them right away. So. <laughs> I love them so much. I go to my Christmas list. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so I go through the world already every day. Uh, thinking about the things that I see, analyzing how people are behaving and why they are behaving the way they behave uh, and trying to understand as well. I do that anyways as an ASPI, right? As an autistic individual, you scan your environment anyways all the time with your cognition to understand how people act. And I use that for my creation. So that's always kind of the groundwork. And then for me personally, I mean, that's a big question. Where do we get our ideas? Is Is often... I would even say always triggered by a situation in life where I see there is either a question unanswered or a problem raised that I could solve with the story, right? Um, in the case of my first children's book, that's uh, Kaya and the Apple Tree. Um, that's about a, like a young girl um, that's living up in, in the clouds, in a city in the clouds. And ha like she has like a, a small pad that's... Uh, a unicornlet it's basically a squirrel with a with a unicorn and um, they have just a small like adventure um and it tells about trust and and courage so that idea came because our youngest daughter she has scoliosis as, as well like a pretty severe and she had to go to a clinic for four weeks um over easter this year and my my wife was with her in the clinic. I was at home with my two autistics as well. So that was fun. But um, she was writing me that our daughter would like to receive post because there was a post office in the clinic and she would check post every day, right? If there's something. So I thought, okay, I could like, I could buy just postcards and send like every day a postcard, right? That was my first study. And then I thought like, look, I'm, I'm, I am creative. That's what I say in the mirror. Uh, just buying postcards doesn't do the job, actually. So what I did is I I wrote the story about Kaya and the apple tree in one afternoon. It wasn't perfect, right? It wasn't perfectly edited, but it was good enough. It's kind of the first, second draft. And I drew a very rough storyboard, how I imagined the pictures. That was They were not even proper drawings, very, very rough. I just spaced out like how I imagined that. And I gave that to my illustrator. I must say I have a full-time employed illustrator, right? So he's part of my business. But I gave that to, to Benny, that's my illustrator, and said, like, I need this in a, in a as simple style that you can create that in one afternoon, right? And uh, he did that because he had fun as well on this. Mm -hmm. And after two days, I had, like, the kid's book, basically. But it wasn't a book back then. It was, like... Uh, individual cards. So every double page of the children's book would be a card, a postcard that I would send every second day to my daughter. And she would have like a continued story over four year, uh, four weeks um, to read every second day. And that's where the idea came from. Um, a, a very specific need and sitting down and say, what could I do about it? I think that is the most wonderful thing you could do. Like, what an amazing dad you are. That is absolutely incredible. Um, I want someone to send me a story. No. <laughs> um, oh, wow. That yeah, is amazing. So, that is amazing. So how did yeah. you, because you've done more than one now, and you've got yes. this beautiful color illustrated book. So talk to me a little bit about that process. Yeah. So um, I would say it's always first the concept and the writing. And sometimes I draw in parallel. So if I like, if it's a nonfiction, a business book, I would, I would draw sketches myself. If it's a kid's book, I'm not that proficient in kind of fantasy drawings or like very elaborate drawings. So I'm not that fast with that. So I would, I would create the text um, based on the idea that I have. And then start pretty early, even before it's a proper first draft, talking to my illustrator and say, this is what I plan. Um, how could we separate that into pages, into different pictures? And we draw together, basically, and work together on storyboards. So I'm like, okay, this is the content. Could we split that into two or three parts or four parts? Because you, when you create children's books, you need to think in both levels, right? You need to think in words and you need to think in pictures because they have to come together 
perfectly to create that wonderful story, right? Um, so we would do that like basically in tandem. If you hire an illustrator, that could be a bit more expensive, but it's it's possible to to sit together with them. Um, and when I have that rough idea on how the pages will look like on very like on a very very rough level, then I start to refine the text basically. Uh, for Kaya, that was normal prose, so I didn't rhyme with something. For The Wrong Planet, that's the autism children's books that I'm, that I'm just uh, launching right now at the moment, I used rhyme. Uh, and that was tricky too, because I I like never was a poet before, so I had to learn that. Um, I guess that was my Clifton strength again, right? Learning something new. Well, talk, um, talk to me about that, because obviously you're, you speak more than one language and you've written yeah. the book in more than one language. So yeah. talk to me about how that works. Like, does it, does it rhyme in German as well? Or like how, yeah. yeah so yeah, I like in this case, so for, for the wrong planet, I choose the way with a translator. So what I did is I wrote the original version in English, uh, in German, sorry, in, in German, um, had all the rhyme and everything ready, worked with an editor, had like the, the finished book ready. And then I searched for a translator uh, who would be able to translate German rhyme into English rhyme because it's that's an, like a separate art form to do that because we use different pictures and metaphors than you do in England, right? So um, I had to find somebody that, that took a while um, and then she would do like a really great great job in translating that into into the English version and the good thing is that I can speak it myself I could I could be very close in the process as well to say look this sounds like a bit too far off compared to the German version why is that so and we would have that discussion as well as um, checking if we're still on track in terms of a language that children could understand right I mean that it just oh. Like my mind is like <laughs> whirling with the complexity of how yeah. yeah and also I find it interesting that you didn't translate it as well like obviously because you're so fluent like it, <laughs> yeah like I find that really interesting but I suppose you're right in that like the imagery is not necessarily the same like there are linguistic differences with with the imagery oh this is so interesting yeah um yeah like absolutely fascinating so so talk to me about the process of portraying autism, but in a child-friendly way, in so in a way that children can understand the like the the complexity of autism. Mm. So yeah, I I believe that that children understand through stories, right? So it's not that we explain something to them and then it's then it's pretty obvious. And basically, I would say with autism comes the challenge that even adults don't understand it properly. Uh, what it feels like because we can we can know the facts and the figures but the question is can you feel it and therefore you you need to craft something as I said like what I meant with that before is that the pictures as well with the words come together to an experience I think that's important so they build on each other so in the wrong planet for example we we choose sometimes um, very special perspectives to look at the protagonist, for example, from the far, like if somebody's flying over them, so they they look very small because at that moment they feel alone and unsure and like not secure. And we strengthen that experience by choosing a picture that shows that as well. So it comes together nicely. Um, and it's about the rhythm as well. So I'm play in the book. I'm playing with longer sentences for and, and dialogues for faces where it's kind of relaxed and it seems pretty normal. And I'm, I'm switching to actually one word lines when it becomes pretty stressful or loud or, or or tricky for for the alien in that case, which is the autistic individual. So um, that becomes clear they they have to deal with something on a rapid pace. And, and you get that feeling through the words as well, as well through the layout on the page, because you see the long sentences and then you have only one word after one word and then long sentences again, give you that rhythm and instills hopefully um, that emotion as well that, that the autistic individual is experiencing in that moment. Um, the other thing is structure. So 
I find it very important to give very clear structure. So for in the wrong planet, I have um, always four double pages per topic, if we say it like that. So the alien starts on the on their planet and it's starting to fly and crashing on Earth. That's four double pages. Then they meet ducks, four double pages. Then they meet other animals step by step. It's always four pages. So if a kid reads the book themselves or get the book read by a parent, they can actually foresee how long this part of the story will take, right? Because they unconsciously, they understand it's always those four pages, right? Um, which is very helpful as well to let loose, concentrate on the story, don't need to understand the structure because the structure is so clear, there's no confusion. Um, and I think that builds together the structure, the kind of how do you place it on the page, how are the visuals coming together, and what kind of words do you do you use as well? So... Yeah, yeah, I think, well, I thought it was amazing. You know, I think that because I've told you that mm. privately. Uh, so yeah. I, we, I read the book with my son and it was, it was so surprising to me how mm. deeply he had understood the story, um, yeah. but in his own child mind and in his yes. own child way. And so yeah. much so that he, the, the first kind of comment that he reflected on is, oh, well, this must be, what white people do to black people you know yeah. and he talked about the, di the differing and making black people feel or people of color feel different mm -hmm. because they are they they don't look the same or or you know for whatever yeah. uh, reason and he was saying oh is this how autistic people feel and i said well yeah they feel different and yeah. like the fact that he put those dots together obviously is testament to your book mm -hmm. and to the yeah. fact that you've so clearly explained such a complex topic in such mm. a relatable understandable way so that's really testament to you it was mm. amazing and i was so i don't know it was it, i don't think i'll ever forget that moment when mm. i really saw that he understood what racism is what homophobia you know what mm. <clears throat> being discrimination is it was just fantastic yeah. so yeah i mean i can't wait to have a physical copy so uh, <laughs> i'm really excited i'm going to give one to the school as well yeah. so um and i need to i would like to build on this Zasha, very quickly because we talked about writing to reader what i did with that book too and that's something i want to encourage other authors to is i read that book to many many people before it was even finished so when i had the very first very rough sketches of my illustrator. They were so rough, super ugly, actually. But I had something that I could put it on a page, right? Very first sketches. And I had the rough layout of my text. It was not even perfectly refined. I started to read that book out loud to groups of people. So for example, I took it to Autism Switzerland, where I had another workshop in 2021. And I read that draft to all the parents and caretakers of autistic individuals. And... I asked them, is it okay if I if I read a book to you? It's about autism. It's not finished, right? It's not beautiful. I would like to see your reactions. And I read the book. It only takes 12 minutes to read the whole book, basically, at least the story part. And uh, I had the people in tears, right? Uh, myself too, because it's very tricky to read that something that personal as well. But I had many, many people, like over half of the people had tears in their eyes. And um, that was my sign I'm onto something. If they would show no reaction, that would be my sign to go back to the drawing board and, and see how you can change that. And the other occasion was, so our son was in primary school at that time. And uh, we had somebody who would, um, um, how do you um, call those people who come to the school with the kid, like to sit by them all the time and like- uh, a, Like an additional teacher, like a support yeah, teacher. Like, yeah. Yeah, something like that. So, and like basically a companion uh, due to like, and he wanted to not have that companion just show up and nobody knows what's happening. He wanted to know the class that he is autistic. So he asked me to take the draft of the book and read that book to his class to basically have an outing in front of the class with that book. So what we did is we invited the class, like we came to the school and I read that draft to the to all the like all his classmates and we didn't say it's about autism it's just like i want to read a story uh after i've read the story 
ask them what they heard, what they experienced, and all that kind of stuff. Was a very deep reflection by the kids. Actually, they they heard a lot, as you to told about your son. And then I said, look, like basically, I am the alien, and Yosha is the alien too. So, and that's what you call autism. And that was like um, a very emotional moment for all of us. But you saw the light bulbs, literally the light bulbs on the on the heads of the teachers, and. The pupil, like the, his colleague, like his uh, his uh, students as well uh, in the class. So that was why, a very powerful thing. Why do you think imagery does this for us? Why does it create that clarity? Like, what is the power in it that's doing that for us? So there are two types of imagery. So there's imagery that you create with words, right? And there's an imagery that you literally see as pictures on the page. Um, and I, like one one element is that most of our brain is like wired for visuals, right? So I, 60 to 70% of our brain is just working for the visual uh, impact of the world. So we experience the world through visuals. Um, as well as when we work with more senses than one, like when you just write a book with words, it's one basically one sense or perhaps two, three, because you feel the book and you, you smell the book, but basically you read text. It's more or less one sense. If you add more to that in terms of somebody's reading it out loud to you, or you see pictures in the book, right? Or the text in itself is a picture because you lay out it in a way that it creates like a dynamic on the page. You add more dimensions to it, which increases the, the level of experience that you have. It's just a, a deeper experience on more levels of your senses than you would have if you just read it. Oh, I, I find this fascinating. It makes me want to go back to university and like do research projects. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk about the fact that you create really high quality books. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? I'm guessing you don't do it through Ingram Spark. And if you don't, can you can you talk me through kind of what that process looks like and how you've done it? Yeah. So um, what I do is I always have like a portfolio of different products. So I would have a product that's through Ingram Spark and through KDP as well, which is basically a trade product then. It's kind of the normal quality. Um, but as well, I have uh, offset, offset printing products. So what I do is I do a print run. I did that for my Creating Clarity book, and I will do that for The Wrong Planet as well, um, which means I print like 500 to 1,000 copies um, on bulk, right? And I have like a warehouse where I put them, which helps me to have the highest possible quality because print on demand already is super good, right, nowadays. Um, and we have Bookwald now in the UK, which like they create like beautiful books too. But it gets even better if you use offset printing. It's it's just better. Um, there is a risk too, is because you have a pre-investment of a few thousand or for the kids book, I will spend like 10,000 for creating clarity. I spent like 15. Um, so that's a risk, but you could like, you could do a Kickstarter or something to finance that if you want to. Um, but you can choose completely freely all the materials that you want to completely free so which kind of paper there are thousands types of papers out in the world and you can do material tests and you can choose just the right paper with a bit of silken finish on it or thicker thinner more volume uh you can you can choose like the cover which should be like matte or would you like lack on it or like foil all that kind of stuff you can choose when you do an off offset i know joe is now printing with with foil at book vault but still the interior is great but it could be even better if you do offset it's a detail but it just feels really good and as well uh, you can have like a stitched binding not a not a glue binding but stitched and all that kind of stuff it's very uh in the minor details that makes it just that little bit better and i feel um i feel super for me it's super important to do that nowadays because if you create a high quality book like i do here and people receive a high quality book they assume that the content is better as well because it's kind of the shiny object syndrome right? You have this beautiful book in your hand and all of a sudden you enjoy reading it even more, even though it's the same text, like in a paperback, 
but it just feels different, doesn't it? And and it's it's a brand building exercise, therefore, because people associate with yourself as an author the high quality standards that you do with your high quality books are as well in the content. And that kind of builds kind of a a bridge or like even a barrier for you to to brand yourself and to to stand up in this world of AI and mass market and all that kind of stuff. So does that increase your level of administration, like for sending out copies and stuff like that? Because that's yes. because I love the sound of like the offset and the high quality and all the details, but I don't love the sound of the admin. Like I'm assuming there's more admin involved. <laughs> no, that's true. So yes, you have the admin. So either you sell enough books that you can just have a warehouse that's taking like taking over as well the, the shipping and all that kind of stuff if you want to. But um, for me, um, on my store, I like I, sh- I sell directly. Um, I offer all my books then signed, so I will sign them. And to be very honest, like I'm not at that level that I sell like 50 books per week, so it's not that much per week. But I really enjoy getting an order, going to like my small warehouse, grabbing my book and and writing like signing it with a name and a, a nice sentence, packing it together, and go to the post office and like. It's kind of the feeling of somebody bought this and I like, it, it feels special at the moment. Yeah, We have yeah. to talk in two or three years when I sell like 50 to 100 books a week, <laughs> I might have shifted the process. Well, um, my, yeah, I mean, I feel exactly the same about that. I enjoy that process still at the moment. I think yeah. for me, I will do a non-signed, which goes through Book Vault. And then I yes. will keep small stock of special editions that I will sign um yes. and deal with the but then there'll be a premium price on it yeah exactly. and that's that's, that's the only thing do. you can do yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah yeah okay let's let's just kind of round up this conversation because i also want to talk about clarity um mm-hmm. one of the things that you did that i really liked in the back of your book was be quite business minded um yeah. so i wonder if you can talk about the back matter you've sort of put it in two halves in the back and i thought it was really genius so could you talk a little bit about the the stuff that you put in your back matter at, at the back of the book yes so we're talking about uh, the autism children's book right the uh, the wrong planet yeah and what i did is um so I asked for raising awareness for for autism in general and for the book. So I have a very small, small, like short paragraph on on just telling people that it's possible to tell other people about the book and that it would be, for example, a good gift for like if you are a grandparent, you could give that to your, your grandchildren or if you're a caretaker or whatever, and just remind people there that you could give that book away or buy that book for somebody else. Because I know for myself, you read a book and you close it. But if you get that that inspiration, often enough people say, actually, you're right. I know somebody who could use that book. And they perhaps were recommended. So I put as well the link on my website, so my direct store. Um, if they want to share it, they can do that. That's the first part. Um, the second part is that I tell people that I'm open to do workshops in schools and organizations and that I have done that before as I told you with Autism Switzerland reading the book to people and had very good experiences so people just know that it's possible because you know like a lot of people read books and most of the people know there is an author behind the book obviously but would they assume that that author would uh, come to their organization to read the book not necessarily but if they read it I hope that they say like yeah, really, I could use that. Like, we could use a reading of this book and talking about that topic. Why not? And I have my email address for that too in that book. And the last piece is uh, telling them as well, if you are a school organization, we have bulk discount. So if you if you buy like 50 books, I will give you a proper discount just to encourage as well. Very like, hopefully polite enough. Uh, I mean, you have read it, polite enough, but just saying, reach out to me. I'm happy to give you a, a good discount if you want to order and bulk because that's something again that people often don't assume. They say, okay, the book costs X. So if I buy 50 copies, it's just X by 50. And that's not the case. I can give them a very attractive deal. I, I thought it was genius and not something that I have thought about. I know one of my friends who writes nonfiction has a bulk buy, but more like looking at the corporate end. And I just thought, yeah, I thought it was great. So I wanted to like include that because I think it's a fantastic tip. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to talking about clarity. 
Why do you feel like creating clarity in your work is so important? What do you even mean by creating clarity? Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, so what I see, like, and since three years, I know why I see that, right? Because I'm autistic, I see that, I guess. I see a lot of people talking about things that they think they are aligned on, but they talk about actually different arguments and don't even recognize it. So one example from the business world is um, I'm I'm regularly coaching uh, executives in, in big corporations. So imagine the C-suite, the high executive of an organization, and we meet for a strategy workshop and we come together and everybody is saying, of course, we are all aligned on the company strategy. I mean, that's normal, right? Is it? So I give them, I give them a piece of paper. I give them prepared stickers that they could place on the paper like icons. And I say with these icons and the paper, please create a picture of the strategy of the company, but individually don't talk to each other. So they create that strategy right <laughs> on the paper with the stickers. We place them all on a wall quite nicely, like in a gallery. And we oh, build a circle. <laughs> <laughs> so we build a circle around it. And and we see like eight different pictures, completely different pictures. And I say, like, so you say we are aligned on the strategy, but what I see here is not alignment. And it's again that light bulb moment for them to say, Oh, you're right. And then they start to discuss. It's not about shaming them. It's about awareness. And with those pictures, they then can ask like, why did you put logistics so close to procurement? Why did you put this so close to that? I thought it would look like this and that. It's very more specific as a conversation already. And it's more clear because they end up aligning to one shared picture of their strategy. And if anybody asked them again, they all answer in the same way. Before they thought they were aligned, Afterwards, they are aligned. So alignment is kind of the big thing where I say clarity helps you with, right? And the second thing, um, because I know that you outline with uh, sticky notes, right? <laughs> Our brain is actually not capable to keep that many things at the same time. Uh, basically in our awareness, it's just jumping back into unconsciousness often enough and we try to hold it, but then it's difficult to think about something else. Um, what happens is when, for example, you, Zasha, um, you put the sticky notes, right? You outline on sticky notes and you put them on on the whiteboard, right? Yes, beside you. So my question to you would be, um, is it happening? And this is something I, I, at least I observe with myself and my clients. Is it happening for you too? When you put sticky notes on that whiteboard and you write your outline of your book and you wrote one sticky note and you wrote another one and you put it right beside that sticky note, and all of a sudden you see, oh, that doesn't make sense. It's that there's a missing link between the first and the second sticky note. Is that happening to you? So I find this really interesting. My I got a scholarship to do a PhD. I studied psychology at university and I mm -hmm. nearly went and did a PhD. And my PhD was in distributed cognition. And um, <laughs> if I had gone and done the PhD, I'm so glad I didn't, I would have been proven wrong. And I only know this in adult life now, <laughs> which is horrendous to have to admit. But um, essentially, it was on a concept called distributed cognition. Mm -hmm. And um, there's a very old uh, academic paper around, um, funnily enough, AI um, and knowing, uh, being able to tell if something is AI or human, like responding to stuff. And it's all about this, this um concept of where does cognition end like mm -hmm. is cognition uh, uh uh restricted to the confines of brain bone and skull mm -hmm. um and i as a young cocky uh <laughs> academic was like of course it is it's of course it is you know it has to be in our brain um which is total bullshit because yeah. if you you know <laughs> and I know this now as I get older and I'm like, no, 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 hang on a second. Let me just draw it out for you. Let me just, mm -hmm. you know, and I can't draw for shit, right? My drawings yeah. are terrible, but yeah. the action of drawing a graph or, or making circles or making marks on the page yeah. 
enables my brain to find that word explanation in order mm-hmm. to be able to communicate the thing that I'm trying to say. And, and half the time, the, the drawing isn't actually even relevant. Like they, we don't even need to look at the drawing. It's yeah. that the drawing is helping the cognition. And it's it's like an input feedback loop. Um, yes. And so, uh, the, yeah, the, the post-its, the reason I do it on sticky tabs is so that I can move them around. So yesterday I was working on uh, kind of the sort of 50 to 65% bit of the plot structure. And I've moved the fucking post-its around like 14 (laughs) times yesterday because I couldn't get it right. And there's, there's something about the tactile nature of being able to feel my, look, it's the sensory thing for me again, like being able to feel the post-its and feel the pen in my hand that facilitates my, uh, like cognition and the thing that I've really learned and I've learned this with GPT as well because you know I'm learners in my top five I want to learn GPT I want to learn the AI how do I control the AI you know like I want to learn this thing um it doesn't it doesn't work for me in the way that it's working for so many other people because it's shortcutting my thinking yeah so um it's doing the thinking for me but that's but then i have massive holes in my brain and i and and so that like i have to use gpt almost as like a inspiration prompt so mm-hmm. that it prompts it gives me the input and then i do the thinking whereas yeah. um and that's why i can't type outlines like a lot of people will type their outline but the, there's not enough physicality in that which is so bizarre because then when i'm transferring the story from my brain onto the page that's the I can't handwrite I have to type and so you know it's this very weird process for me but there's yeah I I genuinely feel like the post-its are an extension of my brain and cognition yeah Yeah. no absolutely and that's what I what I mean when I say clarity it's can you find ways techniques to help your brain think more clearly because if you keep your brain like bound in your skull, it has very limited capacity. If you extend your brain to your fingers, to the pen, to a post-it, to like a drawing or a post on the wall, whatever it is, then you like exponentially raise the potential of your brain. Right? Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's happening through clarity. It's so interesting. I wonder how, how does running affect your like, cognition? Running is like, while I'm running, um, it's more my unconscious that's working, right? What running does is it it kind of activates my whole body and therefore enables me to think better afterwards, especially like because I prefer to like when I am creative and I'm thinking about stuff, conceptually deep thinking, I prefer to do that on my feet. Like being able to walk around, walking like actually working on like a flip chart or on a wall or on a standing desk. In the moment that I stand, I'm so much more creative than if I sit down. Perhaps you oh, try that for yourself someday, so, but well, it's the, really like, helping. The interesting thing for me is I can't be at the desk. I have to sit on the floor. Like there's something about yeah. having my feet on the floor that I yeah. need, like, yeah. or like more of my body pressing against the floor is yeah. what helps. And often I'll lie down. I'll just like lie on the yeah. floor, like with post-its or yeah, there's definitely something to me. So I've never even thought about the fact that I do this, but yeah, yeah. I don't sit in this chair. This chair is for typing or for yes. podcasting or standing, you know, sometimes I stand and podcast. Um, yeah. So I wanted to, Let's say people are like me <laughs> and their level of drawing involves like, you know, the five-year-old level of drawing. <laughs> like, <laughs> what, what do you say to them um, to kind of encourage them to to experiment or to, to try and draw yeah. their way into clarity? So first of all, you don't need actually to draw, but first start, for example, like you do, Sasha, using sticky notes and externalize your thoughts on a surface with writing. You could be more like sophisticated and then start using different colors in terms of color coding for different topics and stuff, right? So, but being precise, not using colors because they are beautiful and they they are fun, but say this color is dedicated to that person in my book, for example, right? That's exactly what I do. Yeah. yeah, so so helpful because all of a sudden you see that person like appearing like in certain chapters, but then not enough in, in the middle or something. And you know, without even reading the sticky notes, you can say, 
that is not in balance. I need to fix that. That's the first step of visual thinking, right? Using color. And if you then feel more obliged to draw something, um, I mean, take like just a kid's book, like a drawing book or something that your kid have and draw one drawing every day, like two minutes, right? Just copy one drawing every day if you want to and you get used to drawing or just skip that, fuck that and say, even if I can't draw, I will do it anyways because what you just said is most of the drawings are not supposed to be drawings that we look at afterwards again. Most of the drawings that we use for thinking are just for the sake of moving our hand on the paper to have our brain think. So literally in the moment that you're done thinking, you could throw that paper away. It's not needed anymore. So why even bother if you can draw? Just move your the pen on the on the paper. Oh, I just find this so interesting. <laughs> um, I can't, I'm really disappointed we're already at an hour. <laughs> um so yeah this is the rebel author podcast so tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel yes um i would like to choose like a a story from school because i mean you read one of my major rebel stories some weeks back in in the podcast here uh but i have one from school and this is not to brag, it's just to, to say like how an autistic individual, like looking backwards, how an autistic individual is rebelling. As I said, I didn't know I'm autistic. So imagine myself being in ninth and 10th grade. I'm not sure how that translates to the UK, which, which would that be in Germany? That's the gymnasium. And um, we have a teacher in math and the math teacher didn't like me, especially he didn't like my my mother, who was like a bit outspoken in those kind of parental meetings in the school. And that teacher was angry with me after that. And he tried to basically make fun of me, uh, show what I can't do, show my weaknesses, all the difficult math exercises that would have been done. He would call me in front and let me do that. And Again, I didn't know I'm autistic, but now back now with with that knowledge, I didn't have a way to solve that problem, right? I didn't know how to like I I was not able to speak to somebody properly about that problem. So, I decide I, I decided to make no mistakes anymore. Meaning from that moment on, 9th to 10th grade, I didn't do a single mistake in math anymore. That means every um Every, how do you call the, in Germany, we say Prüfungen, it's the every test, right? Every math test. I would finish with not even a writing mistake, like zero mistakes. Wow. <laughs> and I enjoyed those moments when he came to me, like gave me that math test back. It's like, well, no mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> And Where was, is your competition? Because I'm like, oh my yeah, god! Yeah, my my so competition is on thirty three. Oh I have god. zero competition. <laughs> but in that moment, and lucky enough, I was able to do that. But in that moment, I just decided, in math, you will never do a mistake again. And for two years straight, I did not a single mistake. And that teacher, I stopped then talking to me and and reaching out to me and all that kind of stuff. There is no greater revenge than success. Yeah. Like literally it is the best revenge you can get on anybody because there is fuck nothing they can do <laughs> or say. <laughs> like, yeah. It is like my fucking favorite type of revenge. Like, oh, that is so sweet. What an incredible uh, uh, journey and incredible story. I bloody love that rebellion. Um. <laughs> Oh, that's going to make me smile all day long. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you, your books, like anything else that you would like to add. Yes. So you find me uh, on my website, and that's a bit complicated, holgernielspohl.com, which is H-O-L-G-E-R-N-I-L-S-P-O-H-L.com. And we might do that in the show notes as well. Um, if you put a slash autism behind that, you will find uh, the pre-order of my autism children's book. So I would be happy if you go there and check it out and see if, if you like it. You can pre-order it right now and get that special edition, that high quality book, um, as well as on all social media. I'm under my full name, Holger Nils Pohl. You can find me there. 
wherever you want to search for me. And that's basically everything. Amazing. Well, I will make sure all of those links are in the show notes. And thank you so much for your time today. And of course, thank you to all of the show's listeners and all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Holger Niels Paul, and this was the Rebel Author Podcast. I'm joined by Adam Beswick, TikTok and Instagram superstar, and we are going to be talking all about selling direct, TikTok shop, and how to like take ownership of your sales and direct more sales towards you rather than giving all of your money, your sales, and control of your customers to other stores, if you catch my drift. Okay, uh, come back next week for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher. And when you have a moment, please leave a review.